checking out the Anchor Faith Message Podcast from St. Augustine, Florida. Now enjoy this message. I believe the Lord's given me a, a message tonight that is pertinent to the time that we live in. I know that most ministers get up here and say that, and if we didn't have one, why would we even be here? But I truly have had this message on my heart for a while, and Pastor Earl obviously has released me to come up here and minister tonight. It's always an honor to preach at home. Always. I love this place. I, 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 every time I get up here, I say this, but I basically was raised at Anchor Faith Church. Okay, every, most of the things that I've learned from God, my parents helped you know, raise me in church, but Anchor Faith Church has taught me everything that I know right here in-house. I'm a product of Anchor Faith Church. I went to our church's Bible school. I came here. I sat right with you. I heard the messages that pruned me and changed me just like you did. There's nothing special about me other than the fact that God chose me tonight to do this thing through our pastor. So I'm thankful. I love our pastors. Pastor Earl and Marcy, they're, um, right now they're in Nicaragua going to deal with that church plant in, uh, at Anchor Faith Church in Nicaragua. And they're also doing a Kingdom Rise conference. So Pastor Mark Brady's there. Pastor Rick's there. It's going to be a powerful time for them. So keep them in your prayers this week. Going into this weekend, it's going to be an awesome time of anointing and change for that country. Amen? Amen. But uh, Pastor Earl, I, I, love, I love that we are blessed with real pastors. The difficulty of preaching at home is we already have such good preaching. So, so you're like, Lord, what is the message for the body? It's not like I'm going to come bring some brand new thing or something's going to blow your mind. We really am just strengthening the foundation our pastors have already given us. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I can come in on a Wednesday night to our core group. Because if you show up at church on a Wednesday, that's not even like Sunday or the Sabbath or whatever. You know you're serious about God when you're right here on a Wednesday. But the message I have to bring tonight is it's going to cause us to do a lot of self-reflection. Um, I always start out this way. I have a passion to make sure, just like our pastor does, that we understand the context of the Bible. There's no way for us to really enter into all God has for us if we don't know why he has established it. So the, the statement you've heard probably often is that where purpose is unknown, abuse is inevitable. If you don't know why something exists, you'll use it for something it was never intended to be used for. So this goes the same way with the Bible and the message of the gospel. If you don't know why it exists, if you don't know what the Bible is about, you'll end up using it for your own advantage in a way it was never meant to be used. That's the problem with having a lot of preachers that don't read their Bibles. You're like, is that a real thing? Unfortunately, yeah, not here. But that's happening. And I feel like the reason this is so strong on my heart is I know half of y'all out there watching the YouTube and you're going through the, the Instagram reels. And there's a lot that you're hearing that say they're preachers or say it's the gospel or say something. There's a lot of opinions. But in the end, you should be like the Bereans that Paul commended and said, you didn't just receive the word of God for, as you know, the words of man, but you, saw, you received it for what it really was. And you went and searched the scriptures and found out that what was being said was accurate. So if we're not passionate about reading the Bible ourselves and studying the Bible ourselves to make sure that what's being said is so, well, what are you doing? I mean, I'm thankful. Our pastor, Pastor Earl, the senior pastor, stands up here and says, you're not obligated to believe one thing I say. You're obligated to go search the scriptures and verify that what is being preached in this platform is truth in alignment with that standard. So when we look at the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God lays out in the first two chapters of the Bible, they're called perfect chapters. Why? Because it's God's perfect plan and his intentions for the planet and for humanity. Then in the last two chapters of the Bible in Revelation, that's where God brings everything back around to restore it to what the first two chapters are about. It's important to note this because a lot of people want to preach all this stuff in the middle like God's changed his mind or because of sin, God had a new plan. But the God of Genesis chapter 1 is the same God of Revelation Amen. in the very end. He, never, he doesn't change his mind. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same in Genesis. He's the same in Psalms. He's the same in Revelation. So if his original plan that he set out in Genesis 1 is his eternal plan, that means everything in the middle of the Bible is to get us back to the original plan. So when we look at Genesis 1:26, it says, and God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. I'm going to repeat that statement because we say this. Do we not say this all the time in Anchor Faith Church? Yeah. You understand we still haven't reached the depths of what this verse means. 
He's, God says, let us make man in our image just like us. This tells me that God expected that when he created man, man would operate like God. Right? Do we agree? Man is to operate like God. Okay, then he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then says the three words that set in motion all the purpose of humankind. He says, and let them rule. That means humanity was created for rulership. Of what? Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we know from this passage and in, all the way into chapter 2, God not only assigns mankind to be the rulers and the kings of the earth, but he gives them the rulership of the kingdom. Amen. He didn't say, let us make man according to our image and our likeness and make them worship us. So right out the gate, there's a lot of Christian religious doctrine that starts getting torn up in this first passage. Like, well, what were we created for? Brother, we were created for worship. Where did God say that? He was pretty clear. If you ask him, why are, why are we here? He answers his own question on the first page. Amen. We're created to rule over this territory just like God rules over his territory. But I found there's this misconception with being a king. And that that's kings can do whatever they want. Have you ever heard the phrase like, oh, it's good to be king, right? Because we think in our modern society, oh, for you to be a king, you can do what you want. I will finally have the freedom to do anything I want to do. Isn't that why people end up climbing the corporate ladder or people end up trying to amass wealth or have positions of authority or have a social status to be a celebrity? Why? Because they feel like the higher they go, the more freedom they would have to do what they please. If I had more money, I could do more that I want to do. When if God intended for man to rule like he rules, we'd have to surmise that he would give man a standard to rule by that he himself had. See, if Adam could do whatever he wanted because he was king, why did it matter that he ate the fruit? How can you as a king lose your kingship if you can do what you want? It's questions. We've got to ask this because the same God that created Adam and gave his rulership is the same God that brought his son to return rulership back to you. And the way Adam was intended to rule is the way he intends for you to rule. So Jesus didn't come to give you back a kingdom so that you could be a king that does whatever you want to do. He holds you to the same standard he holds himself to. Because then we get this problem. Abuse is inevitable if you read the gospel through the eyes of just, oh, God, is, he's emotionally moved by things. Then we end up getting this statement, God's in control. Mm. I'm telling you, the, the people got me shaking their heads way more on the podcast because here we got good teaching. And we know in Anchor Faith Church, God's in control of what? His word. His word. See, in the car, they're like, what is this guy saying? But God's not just in control to do whatever he pleases. God has bound himself to his eternal standard. That is his own word. We see this because we know God has the name above all names, right? We sing the name above all names and we sing these songs, but there's something higher than his name. Psalm 138 tells us he exalts his word above his own name. I'm going to try not to talk fast, but I'm a clay. Okay. So I don't, I don't know. I'm getting ready to like rapid fire some information here. You're going to have to take good notes or go back and listen. But if you think about what God holds his standard to, you realize David was a man after God's own heart, right? So David, as a ruling king, apparently in the, in the ver- in Proverbs where it says that um, where a man's treasure is, there his heart is also, must mean if David was after God's heart, he found where God's treasure was. And then he put his heart where God's treasure was. Well, where's God's treasure? Well, we find David gives us the key answer in Psalm 119. Your word, O Lord, I've hidden in my heart. Your principles, your precepts, I meditate on them. They're life to me. They're the bread that I eat. They're the water that I drink. Your word is everything. God said, this man gets it. He gets what I'm about. That's why you'll never understand faith if you don't understand the value God has in his own word. You don't come to God and try to emotionally get him to move. You come to God and you say, hey, the thing you value, I want want to adhere to that. I'm going to give you your word. So the most endearing quality of God is that he keeps his own word. So then what expectation does he have on us? 
If, if we're to rule like him, if he made us in, our, in his likeness, in his image so that we would rule like him, that means we must adhere to the ruling standard that he adheres to, which is his word. And then from there, we must value the thing he values, which is his word. So then Jesus shows up to restore us back to all that Adam had lost. Adam lost a kingdom, not a religion. So Jesus was not a religious leader. Man made him a religious leader. Man lifted him up as a leader of a religion. Jesus came as what he was. That was a ruling king and the one bringing back the reign of God to the planet. That's why he was able to say the kingdom of God is the most important thing that I could ever tell you about. Already we're stepping on toes, I guess. I don't, I'm just kidding. I love Mr. Don. He's, he's not leaving because of that, I hope. Um, anyway, he's like, the word of God, what? <laughs> but Jesus came and brought a message so that then he gives us this, we have this mandate to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? But again, religion has taken Jesus Christ and made his life story the message and we forgot what his message was. We're not called to preach about Jesus. And I know this is rough for some people. Again, there's people swerving on the podcast later. Y'all are fine. But the message was never Jesus's life story and what he came to do for humanity. If that was the gospel, he's a bad preacher. If that was the gospel, Jesus failed his, his ministry because he just never preached that message. He told a handful of people in private about what he would do in his death, burial and resurrection. And even they didn't believe him. But when he got in front of the masses, he said, listen, the kingdom of God is at hand. It has arrived. It's back. It's a big moment. The kingdom of God has showed back up. You can live the kingdom right now. And you'll find that oh, as you go through the gospels, Jesus's message continually empowered your daily living, not what you do when you die. In fact, if he was concerned about what happens when you die, he would have preached it. He would have said it. We learn from the epistles what happens when we die, to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. And that's a, that's a principle that nobody's questioning that. We understand what happens when you die. But if the gospel is about what happens when you die, what do we do until then? Right. Yeah. Then we get whole denominations of people preaching stuff like, well, we're just barely making it. But one day when the, in the great by and by, we'll, we'll get up to heaven and we'll be there forever. If you read it, we're not. Not even a whole lifetime do you spend there. You come back to where you were created for, which is the planet. But when you misunderstand the message of the Bible and you think, well, it's about getting people to be able to go to heaven in the afterlife. Then you end up saying weird things that Jesus never said. You end up coming up with weird doctrines and weird ideas about what it means to live as a Christian or be a, be a Christian when the whole word Christian means to be Christ-like. And if our goal is to be like Christ, don't you think we should at minimum preach the message he preached? Yes. Much less live like he lived. You understand why Jesus was able to be the last Adam? Because the first Adam as a ruler <laughs> didn't uphold God's standard and did his own standard. He did his own will. He ate the fruit and then lost his dominion because dominion was tied to the ability to adhere to the word. Jesus came and did the opposite of Adam. Yeah. Jesus came and said, I'm here to only do what the father says. Right. I'm concerned. I'm concerned that the modern American church has preached to you a cheap gospel. Because in the end, I can't find where Jesus says this thing is just free. Because it sure costs him something. And all those in the room that are religious are like, brother, it's not of works so any man should boast. Yeah, you know, it's the free gift of God. It is a free gift, but what's the free gift? If you're going to come at me with scripture, let's follow it through. Because I don't see where Jesus went to his disciples and said, hey, when he first called them, think about the first time that he called his disciples. They're out there fishing, right? They're fishermen. He comes and says, hey, lay down your nets, put aside this, what you're doing, and you come follow me. For free, obviously. But did it cost them something to follow freely? 
That, that, ver, that, that account is little deeper than we give it credit for because understand, them being fishermen with nets, they didn't just lay down tools on a job site and walk away. They laid down everything their grandfathers and their fathers had taught them. They laid down their, corp, their identity among the townspeople of these are fishermen. And think about what identity they picked up. That they would forever be called students. That's what disciple means, right? It means a student. The disciples of Jesus. We still call them the students of Jesus. They laid down an old identity. So tonight, I'm really going to be talking about the cost of the kingdom. If I, if, I had a, if I had a title, I hate it when ministers do that. If I had a title, obviously I'm about to say what the title is, okay? But the title would be Dying to Reign. Because unfortunately, the, the, a popular message in church circles and a popular message when you're on that Instagram and you're seeing the little clips of the things is that basically you pray a prayer and then you don't have to do anything else. And that it doesn't cost you anything. When every time Jesus gave a call to the kingdom, there was always a price you have to pay. Now your works, you could never, and the, and the old person that you were, we know that Romans tells us when, when we were first, when we were born, we were born into a sin nature. We've got the sin nature on us. We can't get it off. There's nothing you could ever do to get that sin nature off of you except for God coming in by his powerful grace and transforming your life. And you can't earn that. That's free. The second chance is free. It's important to mention that. It's a free gift. Because God didn't have to give you another way to come back into the kingdom. He freely did that of his own nature. However, we've, we've heard this message that there's no obligation on your part. It's like an infomercial, right? Like, no cost, no obligation. 90 days, free trial. You can come to church and be a Christian as, well, as, as long as it works out for you. And if it doesn't work out for you, then you can just walk away and there's no problem. When that was never the message of Jesus or the disciples. In fact, if you look at the early church, they died for what they believed in the physical flesh. I just think the idea of being born again is funny, that... You can be born again. When my children were born, Titus is on the front row. Titus, raise your hand. Wave your hand. No, higher. They can't see it. There it is. When Titus was born, that was a brand new life that entered the planet that hasn't been here previous with all the potential to grow and develop and grow into something awesome. Yeah, we say we want to get born into the kingdom and we don't realize what comes before the new birth. We want to be likened unto Christ's resurrection, but there's something that always precedes a resurrection. Think about it. I'm telling you, we can't understand the Bible without the Holy Ghost, but there's just something about the brain God gave us and the Holy Ghost coming together that we're like, let's just think about it. That too many believers want to come in and be born again, yet have the other one still living. You can't have two. You understand there's no commitment if the other one doesn't die. You were a sinner. That's what you were. So when you became born again, what you were is supposed to be gone. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, I guess we'll get to the first scripture. This is the second scripture (laughs) out of 38. Listen, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus says this important statement. He, He says, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, do we wish to go after him? Yes. Is it free to follow him? No. We don't know. See, everyone's like, yeah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> we'll figure it out. We've got a long time. I've only been going 18 minutes. It says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. See, we want to be followers of Christ, but there's two prerequisites. And you can follow him for free. It's open to anybody. And you could never earn that opportunity. But there's two prerequisites to being a follower. It says that if you wish to come after me, you must deny yourself. Daily take up your cross and follow me. Hmm. There's a cost that comes with ruling. I've heard this statement before when they're like, you know, God, God, he'll just take you as you are. Just come as you are. Jesus will receive you as you are. You know what? You can approach the door in whatever way you are. 
But you cannot enter in that way. The new birth is always preceded by a death of something. To be resurrected with Christ is to also be likened unto his death and burial first. Sometimes you got to let these things sink in because too often we've cheapened what we've been given. When we get a gospel that's just free, there's no obligation to you. There's nothing you should do. There's nothing you can do. We've actually taken a gospel that's valuable. We've stolen it and then given illegal contraband to someone else. And I'm telling you in the end, the owner's coming and he's filed a claim. Then to say in the end, he separates the sheep from the goats. And they all say, Lord. But I tell you right now, some of them didn't pay what the others paid. There's a death that has to come. There's, the first thing you have to die to in the kingdom is your identity. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The Apostle Paul's writing this. One of the greatest you know, writers of the New Testament. And he's written more than you know, any of you have. Uh, the New Testament. <laughs> I'm going to get facts. And then somebody's going to come back. Oh, you're facts. Listen, in Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul writes and he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Haven't we quoted this before? What do you think his crucifixion did? Didn't it kill him? The Apostle Paul identifies, I've been crucified with Christ. So let's, let's, let me help your intellect a little bit. The Apostle Paul's writing this though and he's physically alive. So you're like, well, what does that mean then? Because Jesus literally physically died, yet Paul is saying he was crucified. What does that mean? I guess I should say there's three types of death. Death in the Bible is always translated the same word. Death doesn't mean stop existing or stop breathing. It's not what death means. Death always means separation. So if you've been saved from death, you've been saved from a type of it. Because when God said, Adam, if you eat the fruit, you'll surely die. He ate the fruit and did he die? Yes, but not the death that you're thinking of where there's a a funeral and somebody comes up and says nice words about you and then they put you in a box in the ground. The death that he died is he became separated from God's will and God's ability to do what he was called to do. He separated himself from his purpose. It was a ripping apart. Another word that that means the same thing is divorce. It's a ripping apart of of an entity that was one that is now two things. So... Adam divorced his purpose when he chose to disobey what the king said and do his own will. Unfortunately, Adam was faced with a difficult choice in the garden. It was a choice between two deaths. He either died and separated himself from God or he died to his own will. And yet modern believers don't think this costs anything. The mere fact that Good and good exists means evil exists. The mere fact that the kingdom of light and the kingdom of God exists means there's an alternative. So that means you'll never be free. Since God will never violate your free will, you'll never be free from choosing. Every single day. That's why it says in the past scripture we just read that it's a choice daily. Take up your cross daily. Why? Because there's something daily that is a choice you're going to have to make to either live unto God and die to yourself or separate from him and his way and live for yourself. So again, Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God. This is a picture of a born again believer. I've been crucified. That means who I was has died, has gone away. I mean, haven't we seen this with water baptism? Isn't that the whole point of water baptism? That who you were dies is buried in the sin nature and the person that you used to be is gone forever and then you are raised up to a brand new life in Christ. Yet when we preach the gospel that, well, Jesus came to die and save you from your consequences, but just keep doing what you want to do, we negate half of the work of Christ, two-thirds of the work of Christ. I knew it would be pretty serious. But you have to die to your identity. Right. Think about it. Yep. How difficult is that for most people? Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example of dying to your identity. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. We find the rich young ruler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He shows up and he asks Jesus. He says, good teacher, 
Uh, what, what can I do to inherit this kingdom? You understand why people want the kingdom. It is God's perfect will and intention for your life. It has everything that you've ever dreamed of inside of it. It's got all the peace you need, all the joy that you need. It's got health and healing and prosperity. It's got life for your family. It's got everything you could ever want. Amen. Yet why is it so hard for people to choose it? Why is this a hard choice? Do I take life and life more abundant that Jesus came to give me, or do I just stay in a little bit of death? Why is this a choice? It's crazy. But the rich young ruler comes and says, I want to live this kingdom life. What, can I, what, what must I do to inherit this life? And Jesus says, listen, and first of all, correction was like, don't talk about the teacher thing. But next, just do the Bible stuff. Just honor your father and mother and, and, and do the Ten Commandments. Just do those. And the guy says, listen, I've been doing them. My whole life. But I feel like something's missing. And how many Christians, supposed Christians, are walking around saying, I'm doing the Bible. I'm doing Bible principles. I'm reading my Bible, but something's missing. Jesus would say the same thing to them that he says to the rich young ruler. He says, okay, you want to know what's missing? Take everything you have. Go get rid of it. He doesn't say, take your wealth because you're rich and we need your finances, sow it in here to the ministry. Jesus doesn't say that. He has no selfish intention with it. He just says, everything that you are, do away with it. Then come follow me. So in the end, what does Jesus get out of the rich, young ruler? Young, if you're paying attention. But he doesn't, if the rich, young ruler chose, right. All he would have to bring to the table is just him. Not a previous identity, not all the things he's amassed in his life, not all the things that he's done with his time, not all the accolades. His, Jesus basically says, tear up your resume Amen. and just be with me. It's a free invitation. Jesus said, come, do it. He didn't say pay some other price. All that required was for the rich young ruler to pay his own price. There's a cost. Because all Jesus would have had is just the man, and that's all that he wanted. You've got to die to your identity. Another one is you have to die to your own lusts. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. It says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Say crucified. crucified. What happens when you crucify something? It dies. It says they, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Which means apparently to follow Jesus accurately, not only do I have to lay aside whatever I thought my identity was, but I also have to put aside my impulses and desires of my flesh. How can you say you belong to Christ in this verse? How can you say I belong to Christ, but I still do my own impulses, passions, and desires? That's asinine. A nine. Don't be weird. Thank you, Chris. Another thing you have to die to is your past. And listen, most people would say, yeah, that's great. Die to your past, die to your regrets. Another example of this is 2 Corinthians 5.17. We know this from the salvation scriptures that when we lead somebody to get born again. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, if in, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, say in Christ. in Christ. He is a new creature. The old things have passed away. It doesn't mean the old things are still walking around, but then they walked by you. That's not what that means. What happens if I said my dog passed away? What would you think? It dead. The old things have died and behold, new things have come. So if I was a sinner, that was my nature and I could never do good enough to earn myself out of this situation. But then Jesus came through his powerful grace and his work of his death, burial and resurrection on the cross and said, you can come unto me and you can come into my kingdom through this work. But it requires that you die and that a brand new person comes in with me. Jesus doesn't accept the sinner as they are and bring them in. Jesus kills the sinner at the doorstep and then has them come on in as a brand new birth. Because again, you can't have two. There's not you and the old man. They can't exist at the same time. But here's a difficult one, and we'll come to this one because this seems to be the problem for most believers. I'm not saying all, but most, is that we have to die a death to our own opinions. 
Let's look at Jesus. Again, if we say that Jesus is our example, could we all raise our hand and agree? Jesus is our perfect example. The goal is to be Christ-like. Am I right? Jesus is, I mean, the whole point of Christianity is that means a Christ-like person. So if we're going to be like Jesus, why don't we look at Jesus, see how he lived, and say that's how I should live. That's the perfect standard. John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus said, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, we have separated the sheep from the goats in this situation. In fact, we could do a, you know, grade your own test. You can determine which side of this you're on. Because don't say I'm Christian if you continually assert your will into every situation and you don't consult the Father and say, what do you want here? The whole call to salvation happens in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Whenever it says with the, with the mouth, confess, it says, um, no, that's the second part. That's 10. That what 9 says, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So most believers say, I've been saved. And you're like, well, how is the Lord doing today? That's right. What did the Lord say to do today? Well, I don't know. What did he say from the word today? Well, I don't know. Self-examination. We got to check and see, is this thing worth it or not? Have you come into the kingdom? Yeah. Have we been born into the kingdom? Absolutely. Do we value it for how valuable it is? Or have we cheapened it? The second one Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus says, for I do not speak on my own initiative, but what the Father, himself, the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Jesus lived this pattern that I don't do just what I want. I consult the Father and I do whatever he says. That I'm not here to do my will. I'm here to do what the will of the Father is and I do that will. Why? Because there's power contained in obeying the commands of God that God himself obeys. You want the power of God in your life. But the power is contained in God's ability to keep his word. So if you're not keeping his word, there's no power. And there's a price to pay for the power. It's that you lay aside your will and only do what he says. And understand, it's, it's funny. We get up here, we try to preach, and there's a, but it's just so simple. Just do what God says. Just do what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? I believe it. I read it. I believe it. I apply it. I receive it. It's good. We're good. The simplest principle in the whole world is that you just do what God says. Right. It's interesting that the, that the lie from the enemy in the garden to Adam was that if you eat of the fruit, you'll be like God. When he actually told a complete opposite lie. Because if you obey the command of God, then you're truly like him. God doesn't disobey his own commands, his own words. He doesn't violate his own word. Camera was going off. <sighs> no way he got a happy one. No chance. If we go over to Mark chapter 8, verse 35, again, there's a cost to this reigning. But the prize is far outweighing what it costs to obtain it. What you gain in this kingdom far outweighs what you think you have to lay down. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest tricks of the enemy is he wants to come in and say, well, if you, you know, you know, if you really commit to church, if you really get born again, you're going to have to, you're going to have to lose some friendships. You know, it's not going to be, you don't get to do as much as you thought you were going to want to do. Yeah. And try to trick you into thinking that you trading your own will doesn't get you back as much as what you've given away. When what he has in his kingdom far outweighs, far outweighs anything that you're trying to do right now in your own power. There's no way you could ever. I mean, don't we serve the God that it says he's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can think or even imagine? Yet we can't seem to get in our heads. But if I give up this little thing in my life, I won't. He's not probably going to do that verse for me. 
I can imagine what God could do. He can do more than you can imagine. So if you can imagine how good it could be, he'll blow that away. If you're willing to pay the price. Wow. Are y'all in for a history lesson? You want me to give you a history lesson? This Bible that we read, everybody, does anybody have a paper Bible? Hold up your Bible. You understand that most of the hands that pinned this were murdered. Not just when they were written in the Bible, times. But 1,500 years after that, hands that were scribing it in your language were also murdered. Yet, do we have the same value and the same passion about the written word of God that people all throughout history have had? And you look at our nation today, and since we've sold a cheap gospel to the masses that doesn't cost them anything, they have no value for this word. So how many believers actually, it's a staggering statistic, how many believers actually even read their Bible? Now, obviously, not here, because we have our Bible reading plan, we hold each other accountable. Most of the people in this church body are reading the same stuff at the same time we're talking about it. I'm going on my 17th time through the thing cover to cover, plus however many hundreds of times I've read it beyond that, in the Gospels and in the, the, uh, the Psalms, the Epistles. I mean, we, we are people who read the Bible. That's why Anchor Play Church is hard to deceive. There's more people who are in the Word. Somebody steps up here and says something. I've seen it. We have, you know, somebody comes in and says something a little different than what we know the Bible says, and everybody's like, mm, looking around, <laughs> texting their friends. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Did you hear what they said? We're going to heaven forever. Listen, listen. I'm not asking you to be critical, but again, it's hard for somebody to come in and deceive a group of people who read the Bible. Amen. But you know, for you to be able to read the Bible came at a cost. It first had to be written by men who were murdered for what they believed in following Christ. People, I want to be like a disciple. I want to be like that. You understand they died pretty gory deaths. We've got this book called Fox's Book of Martyrs where a man named John Fox ended up going on this long, you know, extended time of writing and documenting the disciples and the people who were actually murdered for the gospel, but then ended up going into his own time frame. And, and for his time, he had modern martyrs that were still being killed and brutally murdered for the gospel's sake. It's a powerful book. But among the time that the Catholic Church was running rampant, they, had, they, had, um, they were you know, spreading their version of the gospel all throughout the, the planet. They had uh, the church in Rome where the Pope was the final authority. They had the church in England that was submitted to the church in Rome. The Pope had the final say in spiritual authority. Well, there's a group of men that rose up, one of them named William Tyndale. Yeah. Yeah. William Tyndale is the one who interpreted the Bible in English for the first time yeah. at the cost of his own life. Right. Because he began to read the word for himself, like we said in the beginning, like the Bereans. He's hearing what's being said by the fallible men. He's hearing what's being said by the palpacy. He's being heard, heard what's said by the deacons and cardinals and bishops. And he's like, this isn't lining up with what I've been taught to read. So as he reads the original Latin, he's finding in there, there's discrepancies where man has asserted his own selfish desires in this interpretation. And they're trying to hide it from the masses. So he said, I want to actually write this in the common language so that we can understand this and that we can all be on the same page and not be deceived. So this enraged the Catholic Church because the question was raised by William Tyndale and his companions, who has the final authority in the spirit? Is it the Pope or is it the written word? That's tough. That's tough when the entire culture and the half of the known world at the time had been converted to Christianity and they were all submitted to the Pope. This also happens to be during the time of Henry VIII who we know famously murdered his wives because they weren't giving him sons because back then modern medicine wasn't as modern as it is now. <laughs> and he decided he wanted to divorce one of them. So he said, we're going to break off the church from Rome. No longer are we going to submit to the Pope. We're going to have Canterbury and the Archbishop of Canterbury and we're going to have our own version of the church. But the problem is they still were hiding the Bible from the people. So William Tyndale says, we're going to write it in the common language. This is taking place in the 16th century around 1555. And as he's pinning this, he has about five other companions that are with him, and they're beginning to preach this message. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to blow your mind what the final straw was of their message. The entire interpretation of the Bible that caused just complete ripples through the Catholic Church and enraged the Catholic hierarchy was hinged on four words. It was, in remembrance of me. 
enraged the Catholic Church. You're like, what? Because at the time, the core of the Catholic doctrine is when you took the sacrament, or communion like we call it, that when the priest blesses the wafer and blesses the wine, it literally transmorphs into the actual physical body of Christ and the actual physical blood of Christ. It's called Christ's presence in the sacrament. It's 2023, so we're like, that's weird. That's some weird Harry Potter stuff. We're not doing that in the church. But William Tyndale and his friends found the scripture where Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. See, what this caused is them to say, Christ's work was finalized on the cross. And no longer is Christ doing this work in us. We do it to remember his work. And the Catholic Church said, you're wrong. And most of the entire nation and popular culture agreed with the Catholic Church. So as William Tyndale and his friends are being led, after they've interpreted the Bible, they've put it into print in the English language, and they've come against the hierarchy of the known church at the time and said, we don't agree with this interpretation. Here's how we rightly divide what's actually said. They said, burn them alive. Took William Tyndale, went and tied him to a stake, lit the fires, and let him burn until he was just ashes. But he had a friend named John Rogers. John Rogers had 10 children. Younger guy, but he also helped to translate the Bible. And John Rogers, as he was being led to the stake, we know that John Fox, who wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs, was present at this actual killing. And as he watches all these gentlemen get lined up and get tied to the stake, he says, as John Rogers walked out, it was as if he was glowing in countenance like he was headed to his own wedding. Wow. You understand these early reformers weren't just, they weren't trying to be reformers. They just ignited a passion for the written word when they read it for themselves. That's as deep as it gets. That's as deep as it was. It's not that God all of a sudden got an angel, a visitation from an angel to William Tyndale and said, you shall pen my word. That's not how that happened. They got the written word themselves, began to read it, and it ignited such a passion that they said, we're willing to die for this word. We're willing to die for others to be able to read and rightly divide this truth. So as John Rogers is led up to the stake, he stands there, he gets tied to the stake, has the bundles of straw and hay underneath him, and the Pope gave him a second chance and sent the bishop to him, and they said, if you will just agree with the doctrine of Christ's presence in the sacrament, we will untie you and let you free right now. All they wanted was him to bow to the popular interpretation of what the scripture meant to them. But that day he died, but not before he spoke the words and said, that which I have preached, I will seal with my own blood. And John Fox writes and says, and as the flames engulfed around him, he washed his hands in the flames and went peacefully. A young guy with a whole family. What what was within them that caused them to say, I'm willing to die for this thing? That I'm willing to die a horrible death peacefully and knowing I've done my work. Yo, we've got Christians today that aren't willing to die for nothing. Most people would say, I'd die for the gospel. I'd die for Jesus. If I had to raise your hand, you'd say, I'd be willing to die for Jesus. Yes, I would. We have this picture of like, you know, when the school shooting happened, when I was a young teenager, the school shooting, this kid held a gun to a girl's head and said, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And she's like, yes, I do. And bam, she was gone because she died for the sake of Jesus, died for the gospel. But I'm telling you, that's not the expectation Jesus had on a regular basis. Even though these people literally physically died. I'm telling you right now, if you think you would die, but you won't die to yourself daily, you're a liar. I used to have this thought because, you know, DC Talk, popular band back when I was a teenager, they wrote this book that was another book of martyrs, right? And it showed modern martyrs, people on the mission field that would die. And I remember reading it, you know, way too young and being really freaked out about it. I'm like, look at these people. But then it makes you ask the question, right? You're like, well, would I die for this? Like, would I, would I put up with what they put up with? Would I go through to the end? You know, would I do this? And I don't know. But the more that I've served God and the more that I've walked this thing out with him, I realize that's not a hard death for me. Because the moment someone tries to physically take my life, I've already died that death. Because the moment that I set aside my own will, I've already died that death. The best they can do is kill a dead man. <laughs> 
Come on, the passion that these early church fathers had in the beginning of the church age, then all of a sudden these passions that these men had a hundred, you know, a thousand, five hundred years after this that are still igniting this passion from the written word, yet we try to coerce people, read your Bible, we have a piece of paper that you can check off. Where's the passion for the word? Where's the passion to say, I'm willing to die for this thing. I will read this. I will be in it. I'm going to let it become everything I believe and everything I know. All they wanted from John Rogers was for him to agree with the popular narrative. If it's 2023 and John Rogers is on the stage, they would say, hey, what is love is love. Just agree that love your neighbor means you, God's okay with everybody. Right. Right. Yep. Just, just agree that... that Jesus died and you don't have to do anything else. That's what the Bible says. Just agree and we won't kill you. It's tough. It's tough. because It's not tough because God can't do it. It's not tough because there's not grace. It's tough because who's willing to do that? Are you willing to die to your own reputation? Are you willing to die to your own popularity right. among your friends? If one of your friends is like, hey, you know, are you sure you want to do this? It seems like you go to church a whole lot and you end up caving and saying, well, I guess, you know, I can miss a few services. When the word of God says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, Amen. you ain't going to die for the gospel. You can't even die to your own self and have somebody view you differently. Come on. People think they die with a gun to their head, but when they get a microphone to their mouth, all of a sudden, what is death then? That's why it disgusts me when I see modern preachers that have a popular big name and a big following, and all of a sudden somebody will ask them a question like, what is your view on homosexuality? Mm. And they can't answer the question because they're concerned about their their popularity or they're concerned about who wouldn't follow them anymore. You're not going to die for the gospel. You can't die to your own self right here. This is your chance to die for the gospel. Assassinate your own, the way people view you then. Kingdom's got a cost. That's right. And it's worth everything. I'm telling you, I, I, I don't know how much more we could preach at Anchor Bay Church and tell you how valuable this kingdom is. And how everything you want in life is right here in it. Right. Everything you've ever dreamed of, everything you've ever desired, the greatest, the, the, all the depression you've battled with, the answer is in the kingdom. All you have to do is get in it and it's free. It just requires you to die to depression. Why don't you want to die to depression? But I'm like, yeah, there you go. I've, I've, you know, somebody's like, oh, I've always had bad relationships. I've just always gone from person to person that always just abused me and had bad relationships. You know, I just don't know what to do. Die to that person that keeps, like, die to yourself that keeps choosing wrong. Live for God. Get in the kingdom. What if he requires something that I don't want to do? You don't want to do what you're doing now. What's the difference? You got the choice of Adam. I've got to choose between two deaths. I either die to myself and God resurrects me or I die myself because I'm separating myself from him and I live in miserable. Amen. Come on. This good. We're going to read a little bit. Let's, let's get <laughs> Mark chapter 8, verse 35. Mark chapter 8, verse 35. It says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. For whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I love the encounter of the rich young ruler because I like being, you know, in the scenario. I'm like looking at looking this overview of this scenario because with the rich young ruler, the disciples were standing right there. We already know they weren't that great at not eavesdropping. Okay, so they they always like, what's this? What's this conversation? I'm sure I'm sure that you know I'm obviously just you know pretending, right? But I'm sure if the rich young ruler walked up to Jesus over there, I'm sure Peter's like, what's going on? What's he What's he saying? Because when Jesus says, leave everything behind and come follow me, the next conversation that takes place is the disciples go, well, master, we left everything and we followed you. My children do this. You understand? I'll be like, hey, go clean your room. And then one of the older one comes in and goes, I clean my room. Why? Why do you got to tell me that? Just do it. Get it done. Be done with it. Why are, we gotta tell, why are you trying to make yourself look better than this person? But we got Peter, who definitely had issues, who comes in and goes, Jesus, that guy didn't follow you, but I did. <laughs> but Jesus follows up and says, listen, nobody has left house or mothers or brothers or families. 
for the sake of the kingdom and won't receive much more in this life. He doesn't say when you die. He doesn't say just store up riches in heaven that one day when you get there, you'll be able to access them. He says, nobody's forsaken something for the kingdom. Nobody's paid a price for the kingdom that the kingdom won't pay out right now while you're breathing. You don't have to just wait till you get to heaven to get a reward. The kingdom pays out right now. But for some reason, people think, well, but what if it doesn't? We serve a God that's the same yesterday and for today and forever. We serve a God who has literally never, ever, ever, ever failed. But all of a sudden in 2023, in Jasmine's life, it's going to be the first time that he's missed it. Sorry, Jasmine. It's the very first time. Yeah, I made it this far in history, but I'm going to fail you. He's never failed. He'll never fail. Whatever he promises, the entire existence of God hinges on his character to keep what he said. So if he said he'll do something, he's faithful to you that he'll make sure it happens. So why is it a difficult choice to go his way? I don't know. Let's look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, so buckle in. Stretch your wrist. You're going to write down every word of these scriptures right here. If you're taking notes, you're writing down every word of this. So I'm giving you a second. I'm giving you a breather. My mic hand's getting real sweaty, too. Yeah. All right. Are we ready? The writer of Romans tells us, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound or that grace may increase? This is a big question in 2023. See, we misunderstand the grace of God and we think grace is the big cover up for what we do that's wrong. Did Jesus ever do wrong? No. Why did he have to grow in grace? So grace must not mean what you think it means then. But the apostle Paul was, was like, I'm going to write way far in advance here. <clears throat> I know this is going to be a problem like a couple thousand years from now. And I'm going to answer the question that they're going to ask in their hearts. What shall we say then? That we are to continue in sin that grace may increase. He says, may it never be. But then speaks this statement that will rock the religious world right now today. It will rock most of the churches in St. Augustine. <laughs> he says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in sin? So what that tells me is if a believer identifies with sin and says, oh, I'm just a sorry sinner, that's what I am. I don't think you died then. I think you were sold a gospel that didn't have a price with it. And you thought you came into a kingdom that didn't cost you your life. And now you're continuing to sin because you never died in the first place. And I know that's a deep statement. But it says, if you've died to sin, how, can you, how could you live in it? That doesn't go together. I think it would be important right now, leave that up on the screen, but to assert this. In the Old Testament, your sins were covered by the blood. Sacrifices would cover the blood. God could view you through the blood. But there was always a separation between God and the sin. And he was able to cover that and show that. And you were always being covered. When Jesus died on the cross and did his final work of his death, burial, and resurrection, that changed how sin and you get together. That for you to die to sin means it leaves you. And it doesn't participate with you any longer. So in the New Testament, blood doesn't cover the sins. It removes the sins and the nature that wants to do it. So when someone says, well, I just keep sinning because that's just who I am, then you need to die. That's the whole call. And again, as a disclaimer, I'm not saying physically die. We understand this. I'm not saying you need to go and actually die a physical death. The death that the apostle Paul died whenever he said, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We understand was a sacrifice of a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. But if we continue on, it says, or do you not know? Maybe, maybe the church didn't know. Paul's right. He's like, maybe you didn't know this. That all of us who have been baptized unto Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death first. 
Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism unto death. Again, there's two things that have taken place here before you participate in the resurrection. There's a death that has taken place and a forever putting away that has taken place. Then it says, You've been buried with him through baptism unto death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in this newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. These go hand in hand. You cannot be resurrected without first dying. Right? And we want, I want the power of Christ's resurrection. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. That raising spirit that raised Christ can't raise you if you're already still there. Resurrection raises something that died. It seems simple, right? Doesn't it seem simple? It says that knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. This is telling us why Jesus did it in the first place. For you to say, I'm just a sorry sinner saved by grace. You have no idea what he even did. He did this whole thing and paid this ultimate price so that you could also come in and be free from sin. Yet we still keep identifying with sin. Why? It says now that if we have died with Christ, we, be, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to who? That's the missing piece for most believers. That they think they were resurrected and they think they were born again to live a life that they wanted. The life that they get to just choose. They want to get born again so they can be free from what the devil says to do what they want to say. And what they don't understand is that your flesh is also siding with the enemy. There's only two masters. There's not three. There's two masters. There's not three. You don't have to choose between the devil, God, and yourself. Yourself, your selfish nature is already sided with one. You either serve the king and submit to the king's rule and obey the king's word, or the alternative is the other father, the abusive, lying, destroying, stealing, killing father, that one. You get to choose between those two. Verse 11 says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. The price that we pay for rulership is we have to die. I find so often that is the the enemy can't do anything new. He's always going to just twist and manipulate something that that the, the Lord's trying to do in the first place. So that's why suicide is such a horrible tragedy is because the enemy has tricked you into saying, if you would just end your life, it all would go away and you'd be better. And he's trying to tell you the same things God's trying to tell you. Just God does it a better way. Because God's saying the same thing. Jesus' call was the same one. Listen, you've got to die. And that old life, all that you're going through, that'll go away. And you can have a brand new life. See, one ends with a resurrection and one ends with damnation. It's a choice between paths that we take. So if the enemy can get you to forfeit your purpose and take your physical life, sure, you're, you're out of the planet. And you know what? You're not having to deal with the issues of the world anymore. But why would you want to choose that over the fact that God said you can be in the planet and still be over the issues of the world? I submit to you that one of the most powerful moments in Jesus's ministry wasn't when he was just hanging on the cross. He did that and it was a final work that had to happen. Not only was it prophesied, but it was there to complete everything he did. But Jesus didn't just die that death that day. I'd submit to you that Jesus actually died when he was in the garden. 
He wasn't sweating and travailing with drops of blood while he was just hanging on the cross. There was a choice that had to be made. And it was the same choice that you and I face every single day that Jesus was faced with. And he had a pattern. Again, remember from the beginning, he had this pattern that whatever the father says, I do it. Whatever the father says, I do it. So for him in the garden, it was no different. Just the stakes were higher. That he's sitting there with like drops of blood and bowed down at this stone. He says, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, if there's any other way for something else to be done, but not my will. I don't choose me. I still choose you no matter what the cost. That's the Christ we follow. That's the Christ that got us in. That's the Christ that called us. And we want to say we're like him. But are you willing to die that death? See, it's the garden death that most believers are faced with every day. They think that someday maybe they'll have this chance to die the death on the cross and they're waiting for their cross, but they're missing the every day walking through a garden full of choices. How often do they say, Father, not my will, your will be done? It's an every day. It says, it's pretty clear through the epistles. It says, listen, the flesh and the, and the spirit, they battle daily and no one's free from that conflict. Which means every day there's an opportunity for you to die unto yourself. Because again, we think I would die for the gospel. Okay. What if you're at home and you're all alone and you're able to pull up the internet and have pornography in front of you? Are you willing to die to yourself? What if you're just tired and you got home and your family needs you and your kids are bothering you and wanting all that? You willing to die to serve them? What if someone at work comes and asks you your opinion about current events? Are you willing to die to your own opinions and just say what God says no matter what the way you think they're going to respond? Because if you're not willing to die that death, don't come and tell me you're willing to die for Jesus. Think about who Jesus is. In John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So God and the word are one and the same. Then it said the word became flesh in verse 14. Who is that? Jesus. So if we understand that Jesus is the word and when he makes a statement, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the father. Who's he talking about? See, religion has focused too much on the man, Jesus, and lost who he actually always was. He was a man for 33 years on the planet that ended up getting death, burial, and resurrection and now lives at the right hand of the Father. But long before he existed on the planet, he existed somewhere else. And what he existed as was the living word of God. So if he says, if you deny me before man, I'll deny you before the Father. I'm telling you right now, the standard is if you deny what the word says before man, he's not gonna, you're not going to have the answer you think you are in the end. You say, well, you know, Bible's up to interpretation. Yeah, and the interpreter of it lives within us if we got the Holy Ghost. Which means we're all going to read this thing, come together and say, here's what the Lord's saying and have an agreement. You want unity in the church, but you don't want unity with doctrine. You're crazy. Well, why can't all the denominations get together? Because y'all crazy and you don't want to agree that what the Holy Ghost says is right. And I'd be willing to bet big sum of money you ain't reading your Bible in the first place. That's why you don't like Anchor Faith Church. Because we show up and every single member of our staff has read the Bible dozens of times. And when you say a scripture is out of context, we go, uh, excuse me. It's not what it says. <laughs> well, well, he's arrogant. These arrogant Anchor Faith people come in here and try to tell us, oh, like you got the market on what's truth. Well, I have the Bible. And I can read. I mean, that's too... Hallelujah. Let's end with this. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Come on, God's good. He, I mean, his kingdom is everything you've ever wanted. It's worth whatever it costs to lay down. I'm telling you, are you willing to die to yourself? If God says, listen, those friendships that you have, they're holding you back. You need to die to your friends. The salvation is free. The new life is free, brand new. There's nothing you can do to earn this new life. And you can come right over here as long as you die to that relationship. I don't know if it's worth it. it what do you mean I don't know if it's worth it? Mm -hmm. Come on. That's a whole different message in itself. That's like a part two. Why is it worth it? <laughs> Romans chapter 12 tells us exactly how the life of a believer should go. It says, therefore I urge you, brethren, brethren, not lost, brethren. Are we the brethren in this room? Yes. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. 
which tells us not every sacrifice is at an altar with a knife and the blood in the, in the throat. That there can be a different kind of sacrifice that keeps breathing, but still lives just as sacrificially. It says that you would present your bodies a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I was created for worship. What about this one? You're created for worship. What about, what about this worship? Because your spiritual service of worship would be that you would offer your body as a living sacrifice, that you would die to your own desires and your own will and your own plans and your own schemes, and you would actually live for something outside of you. You willing to die when somebody, you get a message on planning center. Is your body a living sacrifice or have you had a long week? That's too deep. We'll keep going. <laughs> then he says in verse two, he gives us like this recipe, right? Of transforming your whole life. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind that you can prove what the will of God is. That which is good, acceptable and perfect. I'm telling you, good, acceptable and perfect is everything you want from God. But the only way to prove that out in your life is to be transformed by changing the way you think and by offering up your life as a living sacrifice for him. You don't get the proof in your life if you don't pay the price for the proof. so much for listening to this message. If you want more, subscribe to our message podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Rating and leaving a comment will go a long way with helping our messages get better circulation. If you'd enjoy watching our weekend messages, visit youtube.com forward slash anchor faith. We'd love it if you'd subscribe, leave a comment or a like on the messages. If you'd like to find out more information about us and how we're influencing the world and help support the work we're doing by giving, just visit anchorfaith.com. 